In the last episode, I talked a little bit about the means of grace, and I want to say more about that here, specifically in regards to how we worship and what you would expect worshiping with us, and the sacraments themselves, because there's a lot of confusion within the Christian church and even within Presbyterianism about the sacraments, what they are, how they're to be used, what God's intention is for them. And we want to be clear about those because we practice the sacraments regularly and joyfully at Covenant of Grace. Now, one of the means of grace is prayer. And I mentioned in the last episode that prayer also includes singing. If prayer is the idea of our responding back to God, of our words up to him on the basis of what he said to us, then both prayer, as we typically think of it, and singing both fit into that category. In our service, we have a time of prayer. It's elder-led prayer. Uh, while we're uh, the size that we are, we're able to take prayer requests. Usually when you're about 60 people, you've got time that you can take requests during the service. At some point, we'll outgrow that and we'll find other ways to use that prayer time. Our community group model is also built on prayer and prayer requests and knowing one another well enough and what's happening in our lives to pray effectively for each other. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our service. We use the Trinity Psalter hymnal, which is a pretty new hymnal that we love because in addition to having all 150 of the psalms set to music that we're able to sing from, it has all the hymns that we grew up with and that many of us love, and it has a lot of the new hymns in it, uh, great uh, music that's come out over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years um, that people have been writing modern hymn writers. And so we get to sing a blend of those with piano or organ or whatever instruments we have available at the time. Uh, we love to sing, and we encourage our congregation to sing, especially the men in our congregation. You can see when you go in churches that if there are men who sing, then there is a congregation that sings. The children follow that lead. And so we encourage singing, not just by those who feel like they're great at it, but by everyone who's there. As you blend those voices together, it truly is a beautiful harmony before the Lord. Preaching is an important part of the means of grace because Christianity is an aural faith, A-U-R-A-L. It's a heard faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. In New Testament, preaching is the mission of the church and the acts of mercy and compassion that come alongside it are to support the preaching. Preaching is the verbal proclamation that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and the savior of the world. And the Bible says that preaching is the means of grace through which conversion ordinarily occurs, not exclusively, but ordinarily Truth is preached, the Holy Spirit gives understanding, that's called illumination, which leads to an internal individual change that we call regeneration, the stony heart made flesh. But this almost exclusively begins with the preaching of the word. Go read Romans 10. How are they to know if no one preaches? How are they to believe without preaching? Both word and sacrament are dependent upon the spirit. Remember, we were dead in our trespasses. We were unresponsive to God and would be unresponsive to preaching. Preaching is just the outward call. But in order for someone to respond to that outward call, they have to have gone through a God-initiated change of heart so that the gospel to which they are ordinarily hostile becomes good to them and they choose to accept God's promises. Now, several New Testament texts emphasize the importance of preaching and its central role in the establishment and continuation of the church. I'm thinking of Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2. Preaching is not a powerless human explanation of the biblical text. 
because the Spirit of God accompanies preaching so that God's Word achieves its purposes. It goes out. It does not return to him void. It does the thing that he sent it out to accomplish. And likewise, prayer is more than empty words. Prayer establishes communion between us and the Creator, thereby empowering us for belief and for faithful, effective service. Preaching's fallen out of favor because some preachers are really bad. Um, They don't make the preaching relevant. They don't explain the text clearly. They're up there on their soapbox talking about their own opinion instead of the relevant and powerful and true word of God. But that doesn't mean we get rid of preaching. It means we get rid of bad preaching. Baptism is another means of grace, and baptism is one of the two sacraments. And to understand baptism, you've really got to understand that God has always operated covenantally through families. Think about Genesis 17, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6. Think about Noah's Ark, more familiar stories. And an understanding of God's covenantal dealings with people is the foundation for understanding baptism. Now, there's a paper, and we have it on our website, about 15 baptismal agreements. And it's an important thing to keep in mind, because as we talk about baptism from a Reformed and Presbyterian perspective, we know that there are dear brothers and sisters in Christ who simply disagree with us. They think that baptism says something different than what we think it says. They think that baptism is for a moment that we don't think it's for. And I'm going uh, to unpack that and talk about that. But it is important that we keep in mind that this is not an issue of salvation. It is an issue of truth, and so we want to pursue truth, and we want to know what the Bible says. But there are dear brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us on the nature of baptism. The important question is this. What does baptism do? Is it a testimony of man or a testimony of God? Well, to answer that, we only need to look at Jesus' baptism, where it wasn't Jesus, but God the Father who spoke. By descending the Spirit as a dove unto Jesus Christ and saying that he was well pleased with him. Baptism is connected to circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament was not a statement of a child's faith. It was a statement about God's promise. The child is marked with the promise of God that if they believe, God will save. That this child born into a household of faith is expected to have this faith because God says that these promises are for you and for your children and your children's children. And it is important to remember, too, that if an adult came into the faith in the Old Testament, they were circumcised as an adult. But that wasn't the normal practice. The normal practice was that they grew up in a household of faith, and so they had received that mark as children. As such an important mark in the Old Testament, testifying to God's promises, where did that mark go in the New Testament? Well, it's baptism. Not the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus. In baptism, God speaks, not man. It's the sign and seal of God's covenant with his people that God makes a promise to the one who's baptized, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And the one who's baptized, though not saved by their baptism, is united by that baptism into the covenant community where salvation exists. That puts them in a privileged and blessed position. They're going to experience blessing in their lives and be privileged to the gospel because they're connected with the church. Presbyterians baptize their children because throughout all of Scripture, God says his promises are to believers and to their children. In the New Testament, when you read about baptisms, you read that whole households were baptized on the basis of the head of households' faith, just as was practiced with circumcision. 
The gospel is not an account of man's work, but of God's. And so the seal of the gospel is likewise about what God says and not about what we say. Yes, it is very important in a child's life that they take the faith that God has given them and express it outwardly. That children are not just clones of their parents. They're not saved just because their parents are saved. They have to have their own faith. But the question is, what do we expect of our children? Do we treat the children who grow up with Christian parents, who grow up in church, members of church, under the means of grace, participating in the prayers and the worship and the sacraments, do we treat these children and expect of them the same we would expect of pagan children growing up with non-Christian parents who never participate in the means of grace and who aren't a part of the covenant community? Of course not. These are two categorically different types of children. God says in scripture that your children are holy because they have Christian parents, not saved, but holy. And so we have to understand that God works covenantally. There's no guarantee that our children, because we're Christians, will end up as Christians, but we are called to treat them differently. And one of the ways we treat them differently is to put this mark, this sign and the seal of God's promise on them in baptism. And that's what we do. We'd say to them, before you could do anything to choose God, God makes a promise to you. Believe and be saved. Now, the other sacrament is the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a visual confirmation of God's spoken promise. That's what the sacraments are. Sacrament is from uh, the Latin word for sacred, and they're sacred because they're instituted by God, not men. In the Lord's Supper, we have visual confirmation of God's spoken promise. And this is that we who are united with Christ will be with him when he comes into his kingdom. So there's three views on this is my body, this is my blood. There's the Roman view of transubstantiation, that the elements are transformed into Christ's body and blood. The, the, the bread and the wine actually become physically the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the view of consubstantiation. This is what uh, Lutherans believe, which is that Christ is present in and with and under the elements, even though the substance remains bread and wine. The Reformed view is that the bread and wine remain unchanged, but the Spirit raises the believer through faith to enjoy the real presence of Christ. It's the believer who's changed, not the elements. So as we take them, actually his body and actually his blood, the sense in which they are actually those things is by faith as God unites us with the risen Christ as we participate in the supper. So that view of what the body and blood are also impacts what we think is happening at the Lord's Supper. The Roman view is that the sacrifice of the cross is repeated. The body and the blood are sacrificed again for the renewing of the grace that they provide. The uh, Some view the supper as merely a memorial service. It has no actual significance. There's no actual grace uh, moving between God and his people that we're just remembering what God did. And it's a nice reminder of something important that God did. But in the Reformed view, we say that it is a past reference to the death of Christ. That's true. We're looking back to it with remembrance. But it's also a present participation in Christ through faith. That is, God is actually conferring grace on us through the supper. Uh, 
There's also a future element, the reference, which is the pledge that God makes. As certain as are these elements in my hands, God will actually return. He is coming again. God knows that we're weak. Uh, both sacraments are tied to preaching, and they're the only visual signs that God has given us to confirm his word. I told you that Christianity is an oral faith. It's meant to be heard, but we're weak, and God knows we're weak, and it's hard for us to believe things that we only hear if we don't see them with our own eyes. And so sacraments are the things that we get to see with our own eyes. These visual signs that are tangible representations of intangible promises. And we should say that all other visual elements are forbidden in the second commandment. These are the signs that communicate and confirm the preached blessings from God to believers. Other physical representations of God's promises are idolatry. These are the ones God gives us and promises to use to strengthen our faith by correlating Christ's Christ's promises, what we believe about Christ with our senses, what we're smelling and tasting and touching and seeing with our own eyes. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a proclamation of his death and resurrection. He gave his apostles the specific instructions, which they've passed down for the right keeping of the sacrament. And so the sacrament is to be taken by those who believe, those who are aware of their sin and repent of those sin. It's not a supper for the sinless. It's a supper for the forgiven. Because in the supper, the the way that it works is that we're united by faith with the risen Christ. So if we don't have faith, then we're not united with Christ in the supper and there's no point to the supper. The wine and the bread aren't changed. We're changed. We're drawn up with the presence of Christ. Our union with Christ is made manifest in a special way. Um, it's not a magical event. It's a, it's a visual representation of the preached word. It's a means of grace whereby God uses these common ordinary elements to do an extraordinary thing in drawing us closer in union with Christ. And so, whereas baptism, we would say, we administer baptism to the children of believers because it's, a, it's an event where God speaks and where they are passive participants. God declares his promise. All they're doing is receiving his promise. It's appropriate that that would be done with infants. The Lord's Supper requires an active participation, that it's by our faith that we're being united with Christ, that we're remembering and believing and hoping. And so it's not appropriate for infants to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, we do believe at Covenant of Grace that uh, many churches and many families wait far too long to bring their children to the Lord's table. Again, if God works covenantally, if our expectation is that he either has given or will give our children faith because we're raising them up in the faith and because they are in a place where the spirit is at work in people's lives, we would uh, expect our children to maintain that faith. We would expect God to have done that work in them. And there's a big difference between the moment God gives someone faith and the moment they have the ability to articulate that faith. And so we look at our kids graciously and we bring our kids to the Lord's table when they are ready to participate, not by demonstrations of holiness that exceed even our own, uh, not by demonstrations of theological wisdom that exceed those that we would place on a recent convert adult who just joined the church and doesn't know a ton of scripture yet and hasn't memorized the catechism. We don't expect those things of our children yet. But we do expect them, if they're going to take the sacrament, to be able to participate in the sacraments, to remember and to believe and, and to, to agree that God is calling them up and uniting them with Christ by faith. 
Finally, it's not a sacrament, but it is a means of grace, which is just to talk about tithing. Um, Tithing, it was commanded by the Mosaic law that Israel present a tithe to God. And that practice of giving continued in the New Testament. In Acts 3 and 4, you see that the apostles' ministry was supported by the contributions of others. In Galatians 6, Paul affirms that uh, those who sit under the ministry of the word should support the ministry of the word. But the part that people get worked up over is, uh, what does God demand? How much do I have to give? What's the baseline? And I don't think that's the right question. At Covenant of Grace, we prefer to set the boundaries around, what does God not approve? It's evidently a requirement from the beginning that people would give unto God. Cain and Abel both presented tithe offerings to the Lord, and God rejected Cain's. And what we see in that is that he was not satisfied with half-hearted or grudging tithe. In Malachi 3, we learn that God is not satisfied with an incomplete tithe. In Acts 3, Ananias and Sapphira were dishonest and greedy with respect to their contributions, and God was not pleased with that. And in Matthew 23, there's this concept of righteousness by tithe, where Jesus reaffirms that the Pharisees, even though they tithed, were disobedient to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't tell them to stop tithing. He tells them to do both, to be obedient to justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and to tithe. So the New Testament does not explicitly require 10% as a starting point, but there is a general principle of continuity between the Testaments. The most important considerations are that we do have a financial obligation to the local church. The ministry we sit under is a ministry we should support. That we're taught all throughout scripture to be generous, not to be lovers of money, to trust God to provide for all of our needs. And that tithing is an act of worship and is best done as a part of worship. It's not just a bill pay or paying our dues or a church tax. It's a means of grace. It's a part of our uh, expression of the work that God is doing in our hearts so that we know that we trust in him and not this money uh, to keep us safe in the days that are to come. So much so that we're able to give away some of this money. Uh, And so that allows it to be an act of worship in our lives where it reflects the grace that God uh, is is working in us. That's a really quick uh, drinking out of a fire hose, but really quick expression of the means of grace and how we use them. Worship is at the heart of what we do at Covenant of Grace. We worship in truth because it's through that worship that we will grow by grace. And it's through that growth that we'll live at disciples. And as we're living as disciples, we want to come back to worship and we want to bring others to worship because we want them to grow by grace and to know this Christ in whom and through whom we're growing.